Hey folks, welcome to the Dark Horse Podcast live stream number 178. I am Dr. Brett Weinstein. This is Dr. Heather Hying. And uh, it's been a hell of a week, but it's always a hell of a week now. It's just the way history has gone. It is. It is. So we're going to talk some about uh, sport today. We're going to talk about um, Trump arraignment, some, I think. And yep. we're going to talk about uh, carnivorous plants, obviously. Well, I'm glad we're going to be talking about sport and carnivorous plants because there's no way those are political. It gives us a chance to get out of the space in which things have a huge political dimension and uh, talk about other things that people find interesting. Yeah, well, we are going to finish on carnivorous plants. And I think I, I at least have, I've not gone looking, but I have not found the political angle on carnivorous plants. So fingers crossed, I won't find it before we get to that point in the podcast. I, I have some concern that somebody will find a political dimension before we get to that segment uh, yeah, and uh, somehow word will reach us and <laughs> we'll get dragged in yep that's that's possible um well we are streaming on rumble that's where the chat is we're gonna have a q a after this uh we encourage you to join us there only on rumble and tomorrow we have our private q a that we do once monthly where you can find that access at our patreons we're going to talk more about some other places that you can find us and upcoming changes to our schedule we're actually going to come to you uh, next wednesday rather than saturday uh, but we're going to be talking about that again at the end of this podcast for now uh, i just want to thank you for being here encourage you to uh, like subscribe especially on the rumble channel etc and uh, we're going to just jump right into our three ads right at the top of the hour Let's do it. Let's do it. You are first. I am first. That is shocking news, but I'm ready. Not the really. No. I was going to say first. There it is. Uh, <laughs> our first sponsor, no one will be surprised to discover, yeah. is Uncruise Small Ship Adventures. Uncruise explores by sea and by land. They have boats that hold orders of magnitude fewer people than most cruise boats, and they take their passengers to some of the world's most magnificent places. Panama, Costa Rica, Galapagos, Sea of Cortez in Mexico, Alaska, and even in our backyard, the San Juan Islands. The small boats of Uncruise allow passengers to get real deep experience. Their largest boat can accommodate a mere 86 guests, with their smallest boat holding 22. These trips aren't about dress codes or glitz, people crammed cheek by jowl, unable to experience anything about where they are. When we talked to CEO Dan Blanchard, we were thoroughly impressed by his background, his story, and his ethos. His boats take small groups of people to places that larger boats can't go, and the excursions are designed to bring people into deep nature without destroying it. We talked about the value of wild, roadless nature, about the environmental destruction that much of the cruise industry causes, about exploration and observation. Our travel standards are high in part because we've created and led trips to many of the places on cruise goes, and we've seen firsthand that most tours do not match the hype. Our hopes were extremely high for Uncruise, though, and Uncruise did not disappoint. They took us along on a recent week-long trip through the inland waters of southeast Alaska, from Glacier Bay through the Tongass National Forest, and down into Tracy Arm. We were blown away by what we saw and what we were able to do, and I will say this is one of those trips that I have thought about many times since we got back. Mm -hmm. And it's not always the case with trips, but in this case, it gave us a lot to think about. Your experience as well? Absolutely. Uh, you know, it's a contiguous, uh, the ecosystem is contiguous with where we live. And so in some ways it is less 
different than it was for a number of the other people who were on board, you know, people who don't live anywhere near the Pacific Northwest, rarely if ever I've seen a bald eagle, that sort of thing. Um, but it was no less extraordinary um, for, you know, in, in part for being able to compare how different it is, even though many of the actual organisms that we were looking for and finding are the same as what we have here in the San Juans. How different it is. And uh, I was completely struck by how impossible it would be to see those things without the help of uncruise. You could mm -hmm. go on a big ship and see maybe some of them at a very great distance, but to get involved, this is really the only way to do it. We saw sea otters with their pups, mountain goats, eagles in their nests, brown and black bears, puffins, orcas, humpbacks, arctic terns, too many species to list, and mile after mile of the most breathtaking scenery. It was definitely not a trip for people who want to just look at the view from the deck of a boat, though. Each day we got out into the environment, hiking, kayaking, skiff touring, and yes, even a cold plunge at the foot of a glacier. Brr. For those who were so inclined, and we were so inclined, we were also stunned by how well we were taken care of. The crew and naturalist guides were, to a person, kind, knowledgeable, and enthusiastic. The food was surprisingly good, and food preferences and sensitivities were handled perfectly, and I mean perfectly. Uncruise understands that the boat is just a tool. Their small ship cruises take guests through the communities and locales on the ground so they can have uh, actual experiences. With every sailing with Uncruise, all-inclusive, transportation, drinks, farm-to-table cuisine, daily excursions, everything is included. Uncruise is giving Dark Horse listeners a fantastic deal. 500 bucks off their current cruises, an offer that you can combine with other savings, including their last-minute spring-to-Alaska trips, which are already discounted. So start planning your next trip with Uncruise today and take advantage of our great offer. Go to uncruise.com slash pages slash darkhorse. Remember, to save 500 bucks on your trip, go to uncruise.com slash pages slash darkhorse. Again, that's uncruise.com slash pages slash darkhorse. All right. Our second sponsor this week is Soul, S-O-L-E. Sole footbeds are the original custom moldable insoles, providing affordable pain relief since 2001. Sole footbeds include a signature supportive arch, which is clinically proven to reduce arch strain in your feet. And these footbeds are great for any arch height. If you have low arches or flat feet, you simply heat mold them in your oven at home to ensure a comfortable level of support. Anecdotally, I'm going to tell you uh, that sole footbeds have been a game changer for me. I was born with weird feet, weird enough that I had reconstructive surgery on both of them when I was 13, which put me in a wheelchair for months and very extremely ugly orthopedic shoes for a year after that. That surgery was wildly successful, though, and I was playing varsity sports within a couple years of having it. But it's been a while since I was 13, and my arches are beginning to flatten, my feet hurt a lot more than they used to. Wearing shoes with sole footbeds in them is helping tremendously. I have sole footbeds in my extra tough boots, the very ones that I was wearing in Alaska, and in my hiking boots, and even in a pair of shoes that you might go to a nice restaurant in. Not that I haven't gone to nice restaurants and hiking boots, I have. They have multiple styles for different kinds of activity. If you have any foot issues at all, you should seriously try these footbeds. Sole footbeds are easily customizable using your oven at home, or you can skip that step and they'll mold to your feet over a few days. You get the benefits of personalized support at a small fraction of the price of doctor-prescribed orthotics, and they're made from recycled cork. Sole footbeds also reduce pain from plantar fasciitis and shin splints. They promote neutral alignment and good posture, and are particularly effective at preventing fatigue when standing or walking for long hours on hard surfaces. Two-thirds of people who try sole footbeds come back for a second pair, and many have trusted sole to keep their feet energized and pain-free for more than 20 years. 
If you've ever wondered whether orthotics could add to your comfort or athletic performance, this is your chance to find out what 16 million satisfied souls already know. As a Dark Horse listener, you can now try Swole Footbeds for free. Simply go to yoursoul.com slash darkhorse or enter the code darkhorse at checkout to try Soul Footbeds free today. That's your soul, Y-O-U-R-S-O-L-E dot com slash darkhorse or enter the code darkhorse at checkout for any pair of footbeds on yoursoul.com. Try Soul free today and say goodbye to sore feet. Terms and conditions apply. I will just add to that. Um, when we first... Uh we're signed up with soul. They sent us some flip-flops and I'm not a flip-flop guy. Um, but because we don't wear shoes in the house, I have been using the flip-flops, just throw them on to go do something outside. And they're actually great. I I'm reevaluating the wisdom of flip-flops in uh, some circumstances. They're so good. Indeed they are. And our final sponsor this week is seed, a probiotic that really works. Your gut and your immune system work together, coordinating your body's response to the world both around and within you. Seed helps improve the health of your gut microbiome, which means that it supports you becoming healthier overall. Our resident gut microbes directly impact the development and function of the immune system. Even before we're born, microbes, microbes. It's not a thing. It's not, is it a, yeah, I don't think I can even make it into a thing. Before we're born, microbes inform our immune system teaching our body how to distinguish between benign substances and pathogenic antigens, that is, the substances that our body doesn't recognize as its own. You can support your gut immune axis in a variety of ways, of course, including by prioritizing sleep. Your body operates on a 24-hour cycle, your circadian rhythm. New research suggests that the gut microbiome has its own circadian clock, and that changes to your normal rhythms can disrupt your microbes, not your microbes, but your microbes, and the important functions that they perform. Prioritizing regular and sufficient sleep can thus help get your immune axis, your gut immune axis healthy. You can also support your gut immune axis by taking Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic, that's S-Y-N, Biotic. Seed is a plant-based prebiotic and probiotic with 24 strains that have been clinically or, or scientifically studied for their benefits. 16 of those 24 strains are specifically geared towards digestive health, as you would expect from a probiotic. And four of the 24 probiotic strains are known to promote healthy skin. Your skin, like your gut, has its own microbiome. Seed supports both gut and skin health. Seed is free from 14 major classes of allergens, including but not limited to sugar, animal products, soy, gluten, peanut, glyphosate, dairy, shellfish, and corn. And seed is basically double-hulled with its capsule-in-capsule design. It is engineered to maintain viability through your through your digestive tract until it reaches your colon where you want it. And the same design makes it resistant to oxygen, moisture, and heat, meaning that no refrigeration is necessary. This is not a fussy probiotic like so many are. Seeds Daily Symbiotic supports gut, skin, and heart health and micronutrient synthesis. We have heard from several people who have used seed and report improvements to their digestive function in 24 to 48 hours. So start a new healthy habit today. Visit seed.com slash darkhorse and use code darkhorse to redeem 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. That's seed.com slash darkhorse and use code darkhorse. All right. Let's start talking about sport. All right, sport. Yeah. Um, so this week in Natural Selections, I wrote my in, on, in my... Uh, the place where I write weekly, and um, many people read what I write weekly. I wrote about yet another somewhat talented, but basically mediocre male athlete um, who's being allowed to compete as as a woman, and uh, he's beating the woman because um, 
because we are a species with um with sexual dimorphism and we are sexually reproducing and have been uninterruptedly for at least 500 million years and uh, those two things in combination mean that there are two sexes only two sexes you can't change between them and uh, the male of the species in in us and in mammals generally is a bit larger a bit stronger and uh, you can't undo those things um, by uh, by taking cross-sex hormones uh, later in life um, or indeed by taking puberty blockers you can't you can't undo uh, the differences between the sexes um, you can suppress some of them but you cannot undo them so um, the title of my piece that I wrote about this was in um, a bike race 134 mile I think bike race yeah like, over 40 percent of which is off off road there's a lot of single track there's rocks there's sand there's cactus <laughs> Apparently, um, there's water features. Water feature sounds weird. Like, like there's, there's, it sounds like a golf course. Yeah. <laughs> you make it sound like an arboretum. Yeah. 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 But I, I imagine, you know, we, we, we have done our fair, never this, like never that. Right. But, uh, we've done our fair share of single track, um, mountain biking and, you know, these sort of like downhill single track where it's getting a little slippery cause it's sandy. And then suddenly you're in the water and it's rocky. Now you've got to climb and it's loose. And, uh, you know, that that's sort of what I have in my head, although 134 miles of it with four, almost 14,000 feet of vertical gain. Like this is, this yeah, is, this is serious. Race. And the water features are more like water bugs than water features. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if they're being like chased by biting flies too, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, they release them at the beginning of the race about three minutes after the yeah. riders go. And the people who are most directly chased tend to win. No. no. Uh, the people who um, tend to win are the it, the women's race now are the men who are masquerading as women because they would. You know, you have to have some skill. Like, you you know, you got to you got to have skill to get through 134 mile race, 131. I can't remember which it is over 130 mile race, uh, over 40 percent of which is in the dirt uh 14,000 vertical feet again like you know just it's a hard race regardless but um you know over and over we're seeing men who were doing okay in the men's division they say oh I know I know what I'm allowed to do now I get to claim I'm a woman okay and they start competing as women uh, and in the case of uh, this this particular character um that seems to mostly mean that he wears dangly earrings um, that's apparently the source of womanhood and, uh, and he wins. And the woman who came in second was gracious, maybe even a little bit too gracious, uh, but said, and actually here, let me find her exact line in, I quote her in my piece. Uh, she says, it's Paige Onweller who came in second says, I couldn't match Austin in some of the single track. The power is not just, is just not comparable. And, you know, this is, this is one off, you know, it's, it's possible that, uh, you know, we've, we've got it wrong. And, um, you know, one, one sporting event was won by someone who claims to be trans and, um, maybe it would be fair otherwise, but this is just example after example after example. And, uh, women's bicycling is falling just as many women's sports are. So there are a number of directions that I think are, are worth exploring here. Um, one is there's a question really about what the motivator is for some of these folks. In other words, if you were a, a middling male athlete in a sport 
in which there was no hope of you getting to the elite level because you have to be, you know, this is the tail of a distribution. There right. aren't very many people who can can reach it. It's not just a matter of stick So if you find yourself unable to reach the elite level and you crave, you know, the trappings of victory, then you discover mm-hmm. that actually, oh, the world has become uh, blind to absurdity and you can simply opt into a protected category's uh, separate sports division, mm-hmm. and suddenly you are an elite athlete, not by virtue of you having done what the elite athletes do or being extraordinary in the way that they are, but simply by changing your category, then um, you can win. Now, when I think about these stories, the same thing trips me up every time. I can't imagine doing that mm. and not being embarrassed by the win. Just mortified. Mortified by having obviously cheated so that's and let me just say i i said i was going to say but the piece that i wrote i called celebrating the cheater how to beat women in the 21st century so when i see these people interviewed and they express pride like oh this was so hard yeah it was you know it's a hundred and what do you say 34 mile largely off road 31 mile bike race fourteen thousand feet of vertical climb Fourteen thousand. vertical climb which is more than 40 percent off-road Fourteen thousand feet that's like climbing uh, mount whitney from sea level yeah right in the middle of in the middle of one and a third centuries one and a third centuries largely off-road this is a brutal brutal race yeah so you know everybody who did it is you know they have accomplished something but absolutely as for whether or not you are a winner in that field if you had uh changed your sex in some by some measure to join a category in which the you are farther down the tail of the distribution and then you win pride is not what you should be feeling and when and because not only did you cheat mm-hmm. but you took a bunch of people who are at the tail of the distribution who rode the same damn race as you did mm-hmm. and kicked ass and the point is you're excluding them from glory that they earned you're not only getting glory for yourself that you're not entitled to yep. but you're you're excluding people who did it the honorable way mm-hmm. from glory that they're entitled to and I can't imagine having a camera pointed at you in that moment, but... And having the emotion, and then saying the emotion, pride. Right, right. So anyway, I I guess my point would be, maybe it's not surprising that the same person who would go through a so-called gender transition in order to become an elite athlete, right? Become an elite athlete by you know, uh, a redefinitional, uh, feat. Yeah. Mostly it's, it's, I, I don't know all of the rules across all of, all of these things, but very often it's just self ID. Right. I'm a, I'm a woman now. No, you're not. You're never going to be. You're never going to be, but let's put it this way. We do know people. We don't know why this has happened to them, but we do know people who have been tormented by the sex that they were born to and have faced the frightening and unpleasant prospect of some sort of a transition in order to feel better, okay? Mm -hmm. But that's one of two paths here, right? It could be that you something about the condition that you're born into, whether it's a hormonal disruption or an ancient phenomenon that emerges at some rate or whatever it is, right? That's one way is that you could be motivated by whatever it is that drives people to do this. Or you could be motivated by the opportunities it avails you of. 
And, and this and this person, Austin Killips is his name, um, was like so many. I'm not going to say all because I don't know for sure, but like so many of these male athletes who are now beating women uh, be, by claiming to be women and getting to compete against them, which why are we allowing this to happen? But they weren't they, like they were competing as men until just a couple of years ago. Right. Right. Like they, they it's it's not that they transitioned, you know, way earlier than we ever should have let children transition and they're coming up and that's that still would not be fair yeah right but these are these are these are people who were trying to make it as athletes and were not winning at it and saw a way in and we shouldn't be surprised that people will take that opportunity what we should be surprised at is that we are offering the opportunity right the opportunity is absurd but it is not surprising. It's surprising to me because I think I'm normal in this regard, but it should not be surprising to us that somebody who's willing to use that gateway right. is also surprisingly deaf to the fact that they've just uh, hurt people who ostensibly they share a sport with. Right. Right. If you're passionate about mountain biking and you just drove some, you know, elite female mountain biker from the podium by pretending you that you were a woman right? You shouldn't be feeling pride, but maybe the same kind of person who would cheat in this way would also be the kind of person who wouldn't recognize that their pride is completely out of place in this circumstance. Exactly. Um, the same, this, the same dude, uh, who just beat, um, several women, uh, in this 131 mile race, uh, said in a piece published in May of this year in cycling news, uh, he said, it's incredibly painful to be othered. And um, cyclist Hannah Aronsman, who is no longer competing professionally, uh, having finished fourth behind Killips in the U.S. Cyclocross Championship event in December 2022, presumably feels rather differently about uh, what Killips is going through. Said Aronsman, Aronsman um, as she was or having just retired from biking, professional biking at a young age, she says, I feel for young girls learning to compete and who are growing up in a day when they no longer have a fair chance at being the new record holders and champions in cycling. So do I. Right. Now, this the idea, you know, it's almost like it's a game, right? That, okay, you're going to cheat to get into this thing. You're going to get on the podium. Then you're going to say a bunch of stuff and you're going to like, you know, pull a bunch of tricks to make sure nobody notices what you're up to, which is, well, if you notice what I'm up to, then you're othering me and you have no idea how painful that is. And you wouldn't want to cause somebody pain, would you? And, you know, two things actually work in the same direction here. Not only obviously is it going to be natal males who are competing against women who are winning, right? Like yep. natal women competing against males are not going to win. Um, but also the women they're competing against being women are more likely to be agreeable and more likely to go like, oh, that's like, I know that's not fair, but I'm just, I don't like the confrontation. I'm don't, I'm just going to let it go. And, you know, I think increasingly female athletes are not, of course, it's not letting it go, but they, but it is, you know, it, it, this is one of the differences between the sexes that women are more likely to be agreeable. That's a, you know, a term of art in psychology here where, you know, not being as interested in conversation, wanting to go along to get along. And well, when a dude shows up in your midst and, you know, wearing earrings and says, I'm a woman now, uh, some number of women, even knowing for sure that they are absolutely being lied to, are going to, you know, are, are going to, are going to fail the test, are going to say, yeah, that, you know, that, that, 
ash, ash, the ash conformity experiment, right? Um, you know, women are more likely to fail this ash um, conformity than, than, than men are. This is it's been redone many, many times. The, the original, so just ash conformity was in like the late fifties, I think. Sixties, I believe. Late fifties or early sixties. I, I I thought it was late fifties, but somewhere in you there, mid century. Right. And uh, you know, it was it was done at that point with all male undergraduates. And uh, that's that's going to be the test where you know, I got to remember exactly, but you know you've shown three lines or something, right? Three lines are put on the board of obviously different lengths. Of obviously different lengths, uh, and uh, and you go into the room, and you don't know if you're the subject of the experiment that everyone else in the room is actually part of it, part of um, that they they have been told what to do. And they what are to confederates say. They hired are confederates. by the experiment to pretend to be subjects, right? And so if you know, you as the person being experimented on are last in a line of three or four and are asked, okay, just, you know, which line is shorter or, you know, is this line shorter or longer than the other? And it's patently obvious. It's a simple question of fact. If everyone before you gives the wrong answer, um, a surprising number of people are much more likely to look around and go like, what am I missing? Where am I here? And give the wrong answer as well. And uh, very few people give the wrong answer all of the time, but a surprisingly large majority give the wrong answer some of the time when the people around them have already publicly declared a patently wrong answer. So that's the, the original version. And I, you know, I don't remember all of the exact numbers here, but it's been redone a lot, a lot of times. It's one of these things that does replicate. It's, it's one of these experiments on psychology that does replicate. And it's been done with women. And um, it, there's even a stronger pattern of conformity in women than in men. And this is going to be directly related to the agreeableness uh, that women have, which in some circumstances um, is, is likely to be a good thing, right? It's not that agreeableness is inherently a bad thing, uh, but it is something to be aware of if there is, you know, a wolf in sheep's clothing in your midst. It's, well, the, it's not actually a good thing to pretend that's a sheep. There's, a, there's actually a deep irony here, right, which is... Um, the reason that males and females are dimorphic by size is about disagreeableness in a sense, right? It is the fact of male conflict having distorted, evolutionarily distorted male form from the optimal ecological form, the form that you would have if exploiting the resources of the world was uh, was what you were built for, males have been distorted by conflict with other males. And so the idea that females um, are less athletically uh, powerful because of the distortion of males, and now these distorted males who've had their power increased to, to fight with other males are now going to be in competition with females is pretty absurd, right? It's, you know, it's... Uh, it's turning the whole thing on its head. But I wanted to come back to this question of, of the otheredness, right? Mm -hmm. The claim that, oh, it's so painful to be othered, right? Yes, incredibly well, painful to be this othered. This is in a, you know, you have to be, you have to squint at it just right to see it. But this person is participating in the othering of half the population. Oh, right? yes. Women who are simply born female and mature into women, Right. That's not something, it's not supposed to be subject to somebody's definitional games or sophistry or anything else. It's a simple fact. You are entitled to be in this category, and there are some burdens that come with that category, and there's some privileges that come with that category, and you, you get the package. But now suddenly, 
We've got men pretending to be women and women being demoted from their own category, right? Mm -hmm. We have all of these absurdities like, well, we wouldn't want to, you know, other the trans women. So that means we have to not refer to the normal characteristics of women as if they're normal because some of the people who are now women don't have them, right? Mm -hmm. So we're going to go through the absurdity of saying chest feeding rather than breastfeeding and birthing people rather than women or whatever the absurdity is. How could that possibly be a greater feat of othering, right? It's like the ultimate othering. Half the population is now second-class citizens by virtue of the fact that a tiny number of people wish to join their category and therefore, you know, upset the entire apple cart. Right. And, you know, was it Johns Hopkins this week that they've since taken down um, their definition of gay and lesbian? And the the definition of lesbian that was published was uh, a non-man attracted to a non-man. Wait a second. That would seem to include cows, cows, monkeys, <laughs> pretty much. I mean, even yeah. plants, if you look at it, sure, right? Yeah. yeah. Even this pen, <laughs> except probably doesn't have attractive. Wait a second. Yeah. No, it look. Watch. Oh, yeah. Lesbian it's a, interaction. It's a lesbian interaction. The <laughs> pen attracted to the earth. I mean, that's bestiality, actually, if you look at it right. Uh, I feel like there were no animals involved there. It's just like a cross type Everything that any of those objects were attracted to was not a person. I don't know. Yeah. I'm not good at the sophistry thing. Well, I could probably yeah. practice, but um, anyway. Yeah. No, but I, the, the, the campaign to make this into a civil rights fight, right? And to... And, where someone can say, apparently, apparently with no self-awareness or embarrassment, how incredibly painful it is to be othered at the point that you are kicking ass over actual women in the sport that they have trained very, very hard to, to be superior at, is extraordinary. Like, this is, this is a loss of civil rights not a gain of civil rights. This is this is a this is a loss for, as you say, half the population, and you know, and it, and it's and it's more than that because you know if we, if if we're talking about sport, it's half the population. But if we're talking about the other ways that the ideology is marching forward, it's of course um, celebrating transness over being homosexual. It's you know it's it's increasing the ability for people to be actually homophobic, right? Like actually be scared of their own sexual attraction um and by claiming something that's not possible, which is that they're the other sex that they're not. And of course it's putting children at risk as we've talked about extensively and as I've written about extensively. Um so I wanted to throw an interpretation at you. Mm-hmm. Um sport is obviously a big category. There's a fair amount of work on the evolution of sport. Yeah. And one of the things that is certainly true within the realm of sport is that it functions as a kind of training practice for other things. Um, you know, team sports warfare, most, right. most obviously. But let's just take the idea that sport is a training ground for skills that are valuable in other parts of adult life. Yes. And I don't know quite what to, I don't know if this is an accidental fact or if there is something driving here, but it strikes me that the rearrangement of the rules surrounding what you have to be to participate in women's sports 
in order to accommodate trans or nominally trans folks, many of whom appear to be eager to cheat and not just to play sport with women, but to beat them because they're not women, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That what this is actually doing is training people for skills that are highly relevant in modern times, right? This has nothing to do with what we think of, you know, uh, the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat, the things that we traditionally think of in conjunction with sportsmanship and the other things that go along with, you know, elite play. Mm -hmm. um, but what this is training people for is capture, Mm. Right. This is mm -hmm. this is men capturing women's sport. Yep. It's training them for sophistry. Mm. Right. Another skill of the moment. If you're good at sophistry, this is your era. <laughs> and it's training them for cheating, as you point out that. And yep. basically, here, here's here's the, the punchline of this. So capture sophistry and cheating. Yep. Capture sophistry and cheating, which are three skills that really should not be elevated. But at the moment, they might be three of the most important skills for functioning in the modern era. These mm -hmm. are the things that put you ahead. And anybody who decides to play by the rules, anybody who's interested in sportsmanship, anybody who is interested in independent regulators or independent thought or analysis that is designed to find out what's true rather than advance a particular perspective as if it were true, right? All of those things, you know, th these are skills we shouldn't be training anybody in, but apparently we are training them. And here's the training ground. Can yeah. you talk your way onto the podium rather than ride your way onto the podium? Yeah. Right? Yeah, that's, that's, that's right. I feel that's, I think that's highly apt. And I'm wondering about, you know, so both of us played a fair bit of Ultimate Frisbee when we were younger, um, both highly competitively and then just a lot of, a lot of pickup, you know, yep. some, you know, for a couple summers, four or five games a week. I never played competitively. You did. I played pickup exclusively. Okay. Um, I thought you, a couple, a couple, I mean, couple we, did day some, long. we did some leagues, but uh, yeah, know, nothing. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, uh, but we both, we both played a lot, saw a lot. Um, and yeah, I, I, I traveled and, um, and, and played comparatively as well. And one of the things, even, um, certainly in like summer leagues where it was competitive, but you know, the stakes yeah. are low, uh, but also like on the, on the Michigan women's team, which is the team that I, I played with competitively, um, there was an emphasis always in the game at the casual level, but also at the formal level on, um, self-refereeing mm -hmm. on, um, calling your own fouls on recognizing when something's happened on you know when you're playing pickup or with with newbies um you know halting play in order to explain something if they don't know why something has happened the way it's happened right it's actually in the official rules yeah and um it's wonderful and it you know it sounds like it could be you know kind of woo and like you know you know what, what the hell don't we don't we just want to play guys like but no it actually it actually really really works and you know people who just you who can't yet throw frisbee and won't figure it out are not going to be welcome for very long because it's just a pain to have such people um you know on the, on the field with you um but especially for you know low stakes pickup games or even leagues summer leagues uh it's really it's really remarkable how many different ages 
and uh, can play together, how many different skill levels can play together. With regard to the different ages, you've got different strategies, right? Like, you know, the older older players are not going to be running long to receive the hawk in the end zone, mostly, right? Um, they're going to be strategizing and figuring out exactly where to place the disc and hope, you know, and, and maybe, um, you know, some other slightly older um, player who doesn't have the you know stamina to beat everyone else down the field is going to figure out where to cut and and receive the perfectly placed disc. Um, but similarly, men and women play together really effectively. It's yeah. one of the few team sports where co-ed is, and it was my favorite. Like I, mm-hmm. I preferred playing co-ed um, to playing all women's games or to watching all men's games. The all women, the all women's games tended to be a little ponderous, a little bit slow. You know, there's a little bit more focus on like, everyone's got to handle the discs. Like, oh, come on. Can we just like, <laughs> can we try to win a point here? And, you know, of course that that's an exaggeration. Um, but they, it, there was, you know, you rarely got the long hooks down the field in a women's game. Whereas in the men's game, the points tend to be very fast. And, you know, usually it was the same two guys, like, you know, as soon as one guy has the disc, he knows that his, the other guy's going to run and that's it, right? Short points uh, and not as interesting to watch and also presumably not as interesting to play unless you're one of those guys, right? So the co-ed games though, they had both of those energies and, uh, and it was great. And it worked if you're doing man on defense or zone or like it just it just worked across the board. Well, it, it wouldn't have worked, though. Hold on. If if um, if you had someone who was who was claiming things that weren't true and that doesn't make sense in a co-ed situation, because actually, no, it does. It okay, does. Well, it wouldn't work for if you're claiming to be a man or a woman. Um, but well, it would because um, the way this works and forgive us, this is worthwhile to understand why it is that this game, unlike others, does work co-ed. Yeah. Um, it's let's really say a that great game if you don't know it. It's, it's a wonderful yeah. game, yeah. but the sportsmanship is built in. It's literally unrefereed in most circumstances, yeah. and it's self-refereed, and mm-hmm. that means you really do say, yeah, I did not, you know, I did touch that disc before it hit the ground, therefore there's a turnover, right? Mm-hmm. right. So that kind of thing. You, 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 nobody lies in this game if they're playing it correctly. I guess if it hits the ground, that's a turnover regardless. I guess so. But um, I have now not played <laughs> ultimately been a while. long enough. But yeah. uh, anyway, the point is, as a point as a point is about to begin, in a man-on-defense, man-on-man defense, um, which is most points in most pickup games, you line up across from the person that you are going to cover, right? And the point is, the teams would be chosen, so they would end up relatively even, even number of strong players on both teams. Otherwise, it's no fun. And then the strongest players line up against each other. And typically, the way that would work is if there are women evenly divided between the teams, which there typically would be, the women would line up on each other. And so the point is, it balances at the level of the individual across the whole team. Mm -hmm. Now, if you had a woman who was uh, excellent, and you had a man who was not quite as elevated in play. There's nothing wrong with the two of them lining I, I up against. Up, I ended up defending against. No men. doubt. Yeah. No doubt. So anyway, but my point is within the team, the expectation is that you as a man are not going to line up against a woman because you can shut her down. You're going to line up against a woman because you're evenly matched. And right. it is that self-assessment of evenly matched and therefore this makes sense, right? And if you violated it, Right. If you did decide, hey, let's make some points by, uh, you know, shutting down certain players and blah, 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 blah. If you did that. Right. It would be frowned on. Right. Nobody would view that as a success. They would view it as a failure. Right. And, you know, 
this this presumes that the teams are relatively evenly matched. So, you know, one of the ways that this self-corrects is if the teams are relatively evenly matched, if you uh, say, oh, I'm going to line up against someone who's clearly uh, my inferior as a player, that presumably leaves someone else uh, undefended who's clearly superior with a uh, an inferior defense. Yep. Uh, and at least in, in pickup games, you know, you don't do this when you're playing competitively, obviously, but in pickup games or even in leagues, um, if if you start playing and, you know, again, we were playing pickup a lot. And so we tended to know the, you know, all of us tended to know who, who was showing up and what our various skills were. But, you know, people have off days, people have extraordinary days. And so you kind of pick teams and you start playing. And if after a couple of points, it's really clear, yeah. like these, this, this is not going to be fun for anyone. Like one team is going to feel like amazing, except it's just not fun. Like you came to play sport. You claim, you came to be involved in athletic, ability, uh, athletic activity with a group of people who are like-minded and also interested in being outside, throwing a disc around on a nice day, and also matching your skills and your wits against them. And so if it's not an even match, you come together after a few points, be like, okay, let's swap a couple people. Yep. And you don't, you know, if you're one of the people who swapped onto the team um, that was doing better, you don't feel bad about it. You're just like, you know what? That's how it is. I, you know, I like, and, and if you're one of the ones who was swapped on the team that was doing worse, you you do feel a little good about that, but it's, it's not what it's about. It's about the team sportness of it. And, you know, biking is not a team. Well, biking can be, but in this case, this, um, this 131 mile, um, largely off-road event is not a team sport, but I guess I don't understand how some part of that, like, we're doing this because we're matching our skills and our wits against one another. Ethos isn't in part of everyone who thinks of themselves as an athlete. I don't, I don't understand it. And I, and I do get that people will cheat if you give them the opportunity. But I also, I guess, I guess I'm coming sort of full circle to where you started. It's like, I can't imagine wanting to do that. Right. Can't imagine wanting to do it. But I also think that this is, um, what was your developmental environment? Yeah. And the problem is, as we've come to in many of the issues that we've covered here, the younger generations are faced with a world in which a larger fraction of the things that trigger a dopamine release are mediated through the online environment, right? Yeah. And so there effectively is no or was no online environment aspect to Ultimate. It was something you went and you did. Mm-hmm. And you didn't, you know, frankly, most of the pickup games that we played, half of them at least, I would say, the only point that anybody remembered was the last one, mm-hmm. right? We may have a sense that we got more points than they did during a game, but people weren't keeping track because the whole point was... It was never the It was never the point. Right. right? It was never the point, right? right? It, the, it only, even, even though in the... Mo- like, you, you oh, absolutely, you, like, I, I, we want to win this point, and we are an entity that came together 30 seconds ago and will last for 20 minutes or an hour or maybe two hours, and then we will disband, and we'll come back together tomorrow or three days from now, and it'll be a different we, and we want to win. Like, that's awesome. Yeah. But it also has no meaning outside of exactly that context. It has no meaning, and yes. therefore there didn't need to be a scoreboard, and nobody needed to keep track. And the fact right. is, it was just as fun or more fun. Yeah. Because the point was, you know, what you remembered was, you know, 
you did something extraordinary. You know, you, you laid out in the end zone and you got the point, even though nobody thought you were going to do it. Right. The, so anyway, all of that stuff is there, but the scoreboard at the end and the accolades weren't right. in pickup games. Yeah. Usually pick up would be like, okay, you know, we've been playing for a while. It's getting like, okay, game to three, game to seven. Like, should we, should we cap this? Because otherwise a bunch of us are just never going to want to leave because we're kind of addicted to it. Right. right. Yeah. Um, so I guess the, the, for me, there's a contrast between What's motivating you to participate? And, you know, look, I know how hard it must be to ride, what was it, 134 oh, miles? 131, 131 yeah. 131 miles, largely off-road. I mean, 14,000. 14, I mean, let's, let's put it this way. There's never been a day in my life when I could have accomplished that, right? right. That is right. that is beyond any, any my yep. highest level of capacity never reached that. Mm-hmm. Um, you could have. I, 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 could think, have I, think, I think both of us could, could have, have trained for it. I could have trained to accomplish it. I couldn't have competed at that distance. No, 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 not competed, but like could, could, could I have finished? Could you have trained the route? To, yeah. Yeah. Probably I could have 131 miles with yeah. 40% of it off road is hard, and especially yeah. 14,000 feet of climb. That's a, yeah. no, it's, that's a it's, lot. That's a lot, a lot. Yeah. So, so I'm not even convinced I could have completed yeah. it. But, um, but anyway, the point is, okay, hard for me to imagine that you would do that because what you really wanted to do was brag enough that you were willing to, you know, cheat, right? Like, I don't, I cannot get into the mindset where cheating, that's too big an investment. Go cheat on something easier, right? <laughs> right? That's a huge yeah. expenditure of effort and, you know, and yeah. equally of equal magnitude to the amazing effort there is the fact that other people who put in that same effort are excluded from credit. You should feel terrible that you would do that. Mm -hmm. But anyway, contrast, that's like the inverse of a sport in which who won actually nobody may even know at the end of the game and nobody cares, right? The idea that the sport itself, the camaraderie of being on the team, even if it's momentary. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what are we training people for? That's really the question. Are we training people to, you know, to become really dedicated cheaters? Yes. Because that's what this is. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. And so you're, you're the, the three salient skills that we are training people for that you named, just to wrap this up, were capture, sophistry, and cheating. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, in fact, when you and I were talking a little bit about this before, uh, and I was describing this situation to you, what you said was, He's cheating with pride. Yeah, cheating with pride, yeah. which is a stunning, yeah. a stunning thing. It really speaks to uh, a kind of uh, defect that's hard to hard to relate to. And I don't mean to be hard on this particular individual, but it does seem to me probably this individual is not going to care because they're obviously quite comfortable with, uh, you know, driving women out of their own sport. That's right. That's right. All right. Well, I like um, that as part of that, we discovered that uh, gravity uh, creates lesbians. I think right. that, that is what we discovered, right? Uh, so if you were missing that part of the conversation, I encourage you to go back and figure out what I'm talking about. <laughs> I, I think people who were just listening are not going to have any idea why my pen is having lesbian interactions and with whom. But uh, With what? I mean, I don't, you don't want to um, other well, the table. I'm going to other the table because here's the thing. Her? If oh, I guess they're both right. right. No, no, no. Here's the point, right? Uh, well, we're gonna need a term, but here's the thing: 
the definition of a lesbian interaction was a non-man non-man attracted to a non-man and in this case my pen a decidedly non-man is attracted not to the table but to the earth the earth so what's the table doing it's uh (laughs) (laughs) you see my point yeah 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 Uh, Uh yeah um i it's not cock blocking. Because, no, it's not. We need yeah. a synonym for pen that. Uh... <laughs> so it's all it's a whole big table. Oh, it's a puritan oh. table. That's it. Okay. Yeah. Uh. No, it's not down with lesbianism. All right. Who knew? You learn something new about your table every day. Uh, that's not true. Actually, <laughs> oh, <it's not. laughs> there are there are days when you learn new things about your table. Yes. Um, yes. All right then. You wanted to follow up. Um, on some of the stuff you were talking about last week with regard to the indictment and uh, and and now and now the yes, indictment of former president and Donald I would Trump. ask people to uh, to bear with us, right? The reason to revisit this is that actually we've learned something new in the intervening time since uh, last week, um, where uh, we talked specifically about the question of Donald Trump the. Um, classified documents that were found at Mar-a-Lago and that he makes no bones about the fact that he brought there uh, from when he was president, uh, and the indictment of him for uh, stealing classified documents. And I laid out what I thought was the uh, best defense, which I think is actually, you know, I'm not a legal expert, but I did consult legal experts, and I think completely compelling, which is, He's the president. He has the right to declassify documents at any time for any reason, any document he wants. There is apparently no procedure for doing so. So it's not even that he forgot to file the papers and that basically by walking out of the Oval Office with those documents, he declassified them and doesn't look like a crime. Certainly not a crime worth putting somebody in jail over, right? Federal indictment on criminal charges. Um, certainly not a crime that we would risk becoming a banana republic over where not only is a former president being put on trial for a crime that almost certainly isn't a crime, and if it is a crime, is almost certainly a trivial crime because he had the right to declassify those documents with some sort of a magic spell or whatever it is that the Democrats imagine he should have done. Um, But the point is, this is also, you know, the Biden administration putting on trial its leading uh, opponent in the Republican Party. This is, this is uh, banana republic bullshit. But anyway. Is he? Is he leading? Yeah, I believe okay. he is leading. Um, I believe he is leading. And, you know, I also think um, in addition to being diabolical, the DNC in urging the Biden administration to do this, which is no doubt what happened, um, is also mind-bogglingly stupid because it is creating the very powerful argument that the force that controls our politics and does diabolical things is its leading opponent is Trump, right? They're creating another argument for electing Trump, which I think is a mistake. I don't think he's the right guy for the job. I've never thought he was. But they are making an argument that's pretty hard to ignore, right? Which is that the the power structure, the deep state or whatever it is, seems to really dislike this guy enough to threaten him with prison. Maybe he really is, you know, the thing that they fear most, in which case you've just made an argument for him. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I wanted to cover um, the somewhat more subtle developments uh, of, of this last week. 
So Trump was uh, arraigned in Miami, and he um, gave a speech in New Jersey after that arraignment. And the speech, I watched the speech, absolutely fascinating, but I want to highlight what MSNBC did in response to an obviously historical event, right? A former president being uh, charged with a felony that I think could put him in jail for 400 years or something absurd like this. Seems like a long time. It's a long time, but, you know, the the idea that he's on trial for something that could put him in prison is a, a very profound turn of events. It is it is decidedly important whether you think he's absolutely guilty and this is a major compromise of national security or you think, as we said last week, it's a nothing burger with no patty, right? Either way, this is big news, right? I, you said that. I, I did. That. We did not. You're not signing on to that formulation. No. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, can we can we play the uh, I need to say that former President Trump has just started uh, making public remarks, just as he did on the evening of his first arraignment on criminal charges. That was April when he was booked on 34 felony counts brought by the state of New York. Now, tonight, after his arraignment on federal felony charges, he's speaking again, this time to an audience of his supporters that's gathered for a, a campaign fundraiser tonight at his, his golf club and summer home in New Jersey. Um, we knew heading into this that he was planning to make these remarks. We are prepared for his pre-fundraiser remarks tonight to again be essentially a Trump campaign speech. Because of that, we do not intend to carry these remarks live. Um, as we have said before in these circumstances, there is a cost to us as a news organization to knowingly broadcast untrue things. We are here to bring you the news. It hurts our ability to do that if we live broadcast what we fully expect in advance to be a litany of lies and false accusations, no matter who says them. And I do not say this with any glee. I hope it is clear that this is not a glib decision. We take our responsibilities seriously. We revisit decisions like this all the time. We make the best call that we can in real time every time. But tonight, our call is this. We will monitor that speech by the newly indicted former president. We will not carry his remarks live. If he says anything newsworthy, we promise we will turn that right around and bring it back to you. All right. Now, what MSNBC says and what Rachel Maddow elucidates here is that they are not going to cover President Trump's response to his arraignment because they've already decided that it is going to be full of lies. And as a news organization, broadcasting lies compromises their credibility. She says they're not going to broadcast it live. She doesn't say they're not going to cover the speech. Well, I don't, they, I don't know what they did, but what she says is they're not going to broadcast it live. Fair enough. But... A, I do not believe they broadcast the speech. They may have I don't know. taken a clip or two. But here, here I don't think we need to uh, split hairs here. She says, we are not going to cover it live because we already expect it to be full of lies. We are a news organization and lies are bad for us to broadcast. Okay, yes, she does. This is A, nonsense on several different fronts. One, this is a former president of the United States, 
as far as I know, the first president of the United States indicted on criminal charges. His response, if he cries, if he breaks out in a beautiful aria, whatever his response to that is, is news. It turns out that the speech in question contains a detailed analysis of his defense. It is absolutely cogently argued by Trump. He does present exactly the defense I talked about last week. Okay, He says, I am not guilty of a crime, and what's more, Joe Biden is guilty of a crime because Joe Biden did the same thing, took documents home, and he was vice president, had no right to mm -hmm. take them home. He was not allowed to declassify them. So the point is, first of all, you can discover something about MSNBC in the fact that they have decided that this is going to be a speech of lies and they are not going to cover it. It's a campaign speech, right? Again, they're not going to broadcast it live. Right. But nonetheless... It's different from not covering it. I, I, and well, again, like I, don't, I have no idea if they did or did not cover it, but what the statement that you just showed us is Rachel Maddow saying, we're not going to broadcast this live. That, that is the thing that she is... Fair enough. However, to. this is a news organization. What they have done is prejudge the speech. Prejudice, prejudged. They have decided what the content of the speech is going to be. And the best thing you could say is that they weren't going to broadcast it live because they expected it to be lies. That's already a violation of their obligation as a news organization to broadcast this newsworthy speech. Lies, uh, yeah, I don't know, uh, whatever it would be. We have a right to know what it is. And what they are doing is they are behaving in at what is a non-journalistic, paternalistic fashion at best. And really what they're doing is they're using the excuse of paternalism. We're not going to let you hear what he said. We're going to judge it for you in advance and prevent you from being able to hear it. They are doing that because, frankly, what Trump said is highly compelling and raises but questions. The, but the point of the decision was made, they didn't know that because it was a question of whether or not they were going to broadcast it live. Okay, but so they the were predicting, they were they were making a prediction. Um, they may or may not have, that prediction sounds like, I don't know, uh, was falsified. Uh, but... Yeah, but here's the test. They're, they're, I guess if I'm, if I'm, if I'm going to steel man the MSNBC decision here, there is a lot of stuff that is newsworthy and they are making editorial decisions all the time about what to and to not show. In addition, again, trying to steal men the MSNBC position here, uh, if you have a policy that um, under X, you know, this is the list of things which will always inherently be newsworthy and therefore if this has happened to you we will broadcast live something something something, um, then that will be gamed. And there will be people, you know, most people won't, right? But some people will go, ah, that's my opportunity then. And not that, you know, not that it was, not that Trump's set up to be indicted and arraigned here, um, but, you know, given how everyone is playing it, it may end up being good for him. I don't, I don't get it. Okay. The test of the hypothesis that this was their... Uh, judgment in error that this was going to be a campaign speech rather than relevant to something newsworthy like an arraignment is that then they would realize upon hearing the speech, oh, that was newsworthy, one end to the other, we will now broadcast it in its entirety. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
I can't say for sure that they didn't pick some hour late in the night and do that, but I do not believe they broadcast that speech in its entirety, which they had an obligation to do, because it was news. And the fact that it contained his defense, and that that defense actually casts uh, a very serious pall over the idea that we are living in a democratic republic, right? We are now living in a, in a, uh, a nation in which a sitting president is, his Justice Department is having his leading political opponent jeopardized with uh, obviously the equivalent of life in prison and well beyond for a crime that his opponent did not likely commit, but that he himself did commit. Now, we will come back to what role Biden actually plays in this uh, later here, but my point is, this could not possibly be more newsworthy. And if they thought something else was going to come out of Trump's mouth, and if they somehow mistakenly understood their job as to be to decide what was worth hearing and not hearing, rather than anything Trump says in the aftermath of being arraigned on federal criminal charges is worth hearing, doesn't matter how inarticulate or full of lies it is. It's still worth hearing in this case, but that's not what was delivered. And the fact that I do not believe that they reversed course and broadcast the whole thing upon discovering their error says it wasn't an error. It was political. And like with so much with MSNBC and CNN, the idea is the pretense that, hey, you've turned in for you know access to the truth and we know this is Trump, so it's not going to be true. It's going to be the inverse of true. And therefore, it is our obligation to do something else with this time rather than let you hear what he said for himself. And then he goes on to deliver his legal defense in public, and people aren't going to hear it. They're going to assume that what he did was lie, right? That is MSNBC um, revealing the game. And that is really the point. Well, so, you know, one thing there, if... if if we had one and only one, you know, state-owned media outlet, and it was MSNBC, and they said, "No, nah, we're not going to show this live," and then, and you don't know, I certainly don't know, but and then they did not say that they did not uh, broadcast it later, and there was no other way for it to get out. That would be a much different situation. I'm, I am, I am not defending them here, although I don't know that I wouldn't if I had more information, um, but presumably. The speech is broadcast. I mean, you said you watched it, so I you did know, watch it's it. it's out there. Otherwise, it's not well, that MSNBC, um, by nannying its viewers, is keeping those viewers from having access to it. But they certainly make it less likely that most of their viewers will end up watching it. Right, but I mean, look, we live in a democracy, or a democratic republic is the proper way to say it. And the idea that you are going to take some large fraction of the voting audience and you're going to add obstacles to their doing this. So instead of tuning in and seeing the news, what they're going to have to do is go find the news for themselves in some channel that they don't happen to be watching, right? That is, this is a kind of election meddling, right? That's what this is, is pretending that you've got a narrative of history and we're not going to let you see any of the stuff that would discover, that would allow you to discover that it was untrue. And, you know, I will also point out, we had a situation in which um, the cruddy bullshit that MSNBC puts on and CNN puts on was counterbalanced by the cruddy bullshit that Fox puts on. And you could, by dodging back and forth between these things, make some sort of a corrective, right? Mm -hmm. But we actually know what happened here at Fox because somebody at Fox 
did put up a Chiron uh, in the aftermath of the Trump arraignment. That's the text that scrolls across the bottom of the screen. I don't think the, the Chiron is the sum total. Some of it scrolls, some of it doesn't. Yeah, show, mm -hmm. the, show this uh, screenshot. So somebody, wannabe dictator, speaks at the White House after having his political rival arrested. Now, that is... So this is this week. Yeah, yeah. That is, of course, a provocative bit of text. And, yeah, and, you know, the, and the picture they've chosen has, you know, has Biden looking um, uncharacteristically strong. Well, it is, <laughs> it, I believe it must be taken from that uh, speech with the red backdrop. It doesn't no? look like that backdrop, but... Um, okay. Well, in any case, look... MSNBC broadcast bullshit. Mm -hmm. Trump is going to lie. We know it because it's what Trump does. I mean, it's what Trump is. We're not going to show you lies because we're a news organization, not a lies organization. Okay, that's bullshit. Okay, this was news. Fox came up with some bullshit of its own, which is it took a scenario in which one interpretation is that this is actually... Uh, you know, Banana Republic stuff unfolding right here in America. And it gave an extreme interpretation too. want to be dictator. Does Trump want to be a dictator? I mean, does Biden want to be a dictator? I, I doubt he's got it left in him, you know? I think he wants some ice cream. I think he wants some ice cream too. Mm -hmm. So, you know, do I agree with, you know, what Fox put on the screen? No. But is it worse than what MSNBC did? No. In fact, you know, it at least right. raises an interesting question. And what Maddow did was prevent the raising of an interesting question. Is he maybe just innocent of the crime because he was president and for whatever reason the president has absolute authority to do what he did, right? MSNBC's audience isn't going to get to that question. Yeah, I mean, I guess um, one of the things that the last three plus years now has uh, made abundantly clear to me is how rarely when uh, talking heads um, of any sort, so-called journalists, so-called heads of public health organizations, et cetera, um, make pronouncements, are they actually speaking from knowledge, right? Did they actually go and look at the thing and do they know firsthand that these are safe and effective? This is almost certain to be a lie and therefore, now, you know, what Maddow said and, you know, the safe and effective proclamations about vaccines that couldn't possibly be known to be safe and therefore is the other thing next to it a lie as well, um, are, are different sorts of, of, I don't even want to say they're both lies, are, are different sorts of rhetoric. But in both cases, what what you see, if you, you know, if you look behind the curtain, uh, is and you know we saw Walensky um, when she was still the head of the CDC say or I don't know if she stepped down yet who knows um, but saying on camera things like oh gosh do you remember you know when we saw this thing on CNN and then I knew that the numbers were such and such for COVID I'm like we you're the head of the CDC you're getting your data from CNN what is going on here right like that's I ah. That, I'm sorry. I'm just. I'm still so blown away, and I don't have the specifics on that particular pronouncement from her. But I thought, do any of these people actually know where they speak? And given that they don't seem to, is that maybe actually intentional and protective? Because if they don't know that they're lying, then it's harder to catch them in the lie because they're just they've they've just been handed a slate. It's like you know, don't don't go into the footnotes, don't read the primary literature, don't talk to the scientists, don't look at the, you know, don't ask how the, 
you know, how the clinical trial was actually done. Don't ask any of those questions. Just sort of talk at this like ethereal, what's good for people? What do people want to hear? Let's let's stick with the PR guys. Let's stick with the marketing. And so, I mean, I think I think, you know, I'm not as thrown by this particular thing from Maddow and MSNBC as you are, but it also just feels like, yep, that's rhetoric. That's not journalism. Just like it's been rhetoric, not public health, rhetoric, not science, all the way down on mm. all of these topics constantly. Right. But so I don't know. I think what you're saying is you're not thrown. Okay, go for it. The only question here is that I don't think you could come up with something more newsworthy in the last year. It doesn't matter what Maddow said. It doesn't matter if Trump lied for an hour or anything else. The fact of a former president being indicted on felony charges and speaking about that is the most newsworthy thing. We could disagree about the time frame, but certainly this week, you know, there's they broadcast every night. They have hours of news, most of which is not newsworthy in any way. This is the most newsworthy thing in recent history. I don't think there's a reasonable argument against that. And, and what's more, if I can complete your argument... This news organization and all of the others that look like it, the New York Times, CNN, Washington Post, all of them, are sitting in uh, a location, a niche, and preventing real news organizations from emerging. So the this idea that you have news yes. organizations that do not report the news is not just, oh, that's a waste. It's Oh, yeah. No, there's opportunity costs. They're, right. they're, they're taking up space and actively preventing competitors, would-be competitors, from gaining ground. Well, and but actively, therefore, keeping people from actually getting informed. Yes. I would also point out the punchline to the Fox News version of this, where mm -hmm. they came up with a overly simplistic view of this turn of events, is that the person who is responsible for putting that on the screen was quickly fired. Mm. Now, and then there's the other punchline, which was, do you know what cannot be allowed to happen? You can't, zero is a special number. Zero is a special number. Mm -hmm. Tucker Carlson on Fox News was an example of an exception to zero, right? This was a person who was delivering, uh, wasn't always stuff we agreed with, although I feel weird even having to say that, right? The number of people who tuned into Tucker Carlson's monologues and found real value in them regular, regularly, and the people across the political spectrum can you like just take take a moment away for a moment? Um, you and I disagree on plenty of things. Mm -hmm. Imagine if every time I spoke about you to anyone else, I felt the need to say, "Now I don't agree with everything he says." Yeah, duh. <laughs> Even I don't agree with everything I say. <laughs> like that's that's not helpful here. I don't think. But um, but seriously, like the people we love most in the world, we. You know, if, if you agree with absolutely everything they say, figure out which one of you figured out all those things. And then the other of you, like, grow a pair, like, you know, yeah. get a life, like, figure out your own brain and figure out what things are actually different in your head and from your experience and what you think you understand to be true from what the person who you are apparently receiving all knowledge from is. So, like, it. I, too, feel that pressure, of course, yeah. right? Um, especially when talking about, you know, people on the right. Oh, I have to say something nice about someone on the right. Oh, uh, 
just to be clear, like, I don't agree with everything. This is insane. Oh. Like, we, none of us agree with everything that anyone else thinks. Right. And, we, and, and you know, I was joking. I don't even agree with everything I say. But yeah. the fact is, you know, one's perspective does develop. Unless you're anything, you know, if you're read only, then maybe right. it's you've... just not a relevant point here. No, it's relevant across the board. The point yeah. is the idea that I don't agree with everything X person says. If anything goes without saying, it ought to be that, right? Especially right. if the person has anything like a complex right. perspective on the world. So anyway, I take it back. You can figure out Which... whether I agree with everything oh. Carlson says or not. But I do know lots of people who get a tremendous amount of value about the way he uh juxtaposes things and he's very gifted and eloquent um and the fact i really think in at the end of the day you couldn't very well have the next election unfold and have tucker carlson sitting on fox news at the anchor desk doing what he does because he would keep pulling back the curtain on the thing. And it's not pulling back the curtain because it serves the right, because frankly, I don't think that's most of what he's doing. I think he is actually a patriot, and that what he does is he reveals the hypocrisy of the rulers of the realm day in and day out. And they decided to, they couldn't shut him up, but what they could do is they could take away the anchor desk and they could leave him as another disembodied voice in a man cave or whatever, right? Um, So... Here's the point. Fox News is being snapped into line, right? Right. Tucker Carlson is gone. He was uncontrollable. He's now uh, on his own. Mm -hmm. The producer who put that aggressive counterinterpretation, the inverse of what MSNBC did, fired. So the point is, okay, Fox News is no longer important or interesting in any way because Mm -hmm. the one interesting thing it had is gone. So your point is that the corrections are happening, but... Uh, on the right. My point is, like... And and one of those, I mean, at least one of those corrections uh, is is patently bad for our society. Yes, and I would point out that what Tucker Carlson did in his most recent monologue Mm -hmm. was comment on this very story. And what he did is not, um, was not simple. What he did was he outlined all of the ways that we know that that claim that Biden is a wannabe dictator are wrong because he went through a long list of things that dictators do and described how Biden wasn't doing any of them. But of course, anybody with the slightest sense of irony would understand that there were things that the Biden administration is doing that could be mapped onto every one of these things Mm -hmm. and that that ought to raise questions. Why is it that so many things do look like what happens in a banana republic if we're not living in a banana republic? And mind you, I don't think any of this is simple, right? This is, you know, is Biden a wannabe dictator? No, as you said, he doesn't want to be a dictator. He wants ice cream. I think that's where Biden is. What we have is not a dictatorship. It's something like an oligarchy, right? Behaving in the same way The people in question are largely behind the scenes. We don't know their names. We don't know uh, what they sound like. But we can infer from the pattern of behavior and what is tolerated and what is not um, where we are headed. And it is very much like a, um, a, a new twist on a very old theme, and that is the illusion of democracy, but the reality is... Uh, 
control by something unelected which does not take our interests seriously more than is absolutely required to keep itself in power. And that's a terrifying thing, right? We're talking about the most powerful nation on earth, uh, ferociously armed and under the control of who knows what with uh, a rapidly declining figurehead uh, whose administration is uh, threatening to jail its primary political opponents, right? That is a frightening set of facts, and I haven't exaggerated anything. No, no, that was a, that was a straightforward uh, list of, uh, or description of the situation. And uh, yeah, that doesn't sound like what I thought if you had asked me 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, uh, the U.S. would sound like. I would think that that might be a description of some far-off place um, that could really use the help of a, you know, amazing constitution like ours. Yeah, and it would be um, a terrifying, if you could teleport that description, you know, if you and I could alert our high school selves right. that we would be sitting here, you know, uh, in our 50s describing the current state of affairs in the U.S. by those terms, it would be a completely jarring discovery. Yeah, no, it, it, it would fail to compute. <clears throat> yeah, it would, fa it would fail to compute, and if you did compute, you'd know where you were in history because you'd know that other societies had failed. And when they did, you would know what tragedies followed. And mm -hmm. the idea that we are on such a trajectory uh, would escape uh, no rational person hearing that description. Yeah. All right, is it time for carnivorous plants? It's, as far as I'm concerned, it's always time for carnivorous. It's not always easy to find them in my no, experience. No, not so much, but yeah, not, not, not so much. Um, yeah, so I came across a new piece of research this week about carnivorous plants, and it sent me into thinking a bit about carnivorous plants, and that was fun. I, I, I remember when I got to do that for a living, you know, think about uh, fascinating biology. That was, that was awesome. So um, carnivorous plants, um, the analogy I came up with um, upon discovering how many times it has evolved is like uh, the mangrove habit. Mm -hmm. um, mangroves are... Uh, plants that grow in salt water and have an ability to get rid of the excess salt. Um, but mangrove isn't a single thing. Mangrove, the habit that we call mangrove, has evolved many, many, many times. Similarly, carnivory in plants has evolved many, many, many times. Uh, something like at least nine separate evolutions of carnivory, including multiple evolutions of pitfall traps, sticky traps, and snap traps. Okay, multiple evolutions of each of those types of traps and at least nine different evolutions of carnivory. So... Um... I have not looked into the history, the evolutionary history of carnivory. And plants. you're going to ask me questions I can't answer. No, I'm going to put one possibility on the table. Okay. I'm going to bet that there are a lot of cryptic evolutions of carnivory oh, yeah. that we haven't spotted. Ways 100%. that plants trick insects into dying in a place where they can have their nitrogen absorbed. Yeah. So actually, let me, the, um, there's a good paper Givenish 2015 that defines what we, so, and I, and I think what you just said would, would classify you as a carnivorous plant, not you so much, <laughs> or a lesbian. I'm carnivorous, but yeah, <laughs> I mean. Um, to be considered, to be considered carnivorous, Givenish writes, a plant must be able to absorb nutrients from dead bodies adjacent to its surfaces, obtain some advantage in growth or reproduction, and have unequivocal adaptations yep. for active prey attraction, capture, and digestion. You are going to be very impressed to discover that the next sentence out of my mouth was going to be the way to distinguish yeah. uh, this was going to be some sort of chemical apparatus for specifically recovering the nitrogen that was once contained in those insects. Mm -hmm. Um, and that that would be the the diagnostic. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, interesting, 
you know, this says unequivocal adaptations for active prey, attraction, capture, and digestion. And you've skipped the attraction and capture. Well, you've, you've skipped the attraction part. So you're saying basically that sounds more like, um, no, why can't I think what's a, a, a vulture is doing, uh, is, scavenging. Yeah. So the, you, you're talking maybe about oh, like well, scavenging plants as a, opposed to you, carnivorous plants. You could have scavenging, yeah. but B, um, I'm really just suggesting that the ability to cryptically attract we, an attractant, right? If an attractant is like some, uh, you know, uh, sticky sweet substance on the surface that attracts uh, insects, yep. we'll spot it, right? If some pattern on the leaf causes insects mm -hmm. to mistake yeah. it for something, it may not. We may not know right away that the pattern is actually an attractant. Mm -hmm. Right, because it doesn't. It's not a conventional attractant. And then the so so then the question, you know, if, if I, I don't know that this definition is the one that we really need to be you know beholden to here. Yeah. But attraction, capture, and digestion. Digestion, obviously, like most plants, can't make hay out of a dead insect next to them, right? <laughs> hay plants can presumably grass can if you're yeah parts of it yeah. Um, but uh, but. Uh, the the thing that the carnivorous plants that you're talking about may not be doing in the same way that we think of that might be cryptic is attraction and capture and you know the cat it's not really capture if like you did attract it through some cryptic means and you do have an ability to digest it once it's dead um, but some you know you're attracting some number of organisms and then most of them just go about their business and leave again but actually because the lifespan of these little flies you're attracting is so short some number of some them number simply of them. die in place and then you haven't actively captured them and so does that qualify as carnivorous plants i still think it does it just doesn't happen to be the criteria of this particular definition well i like it. they've set a high bar yeah, right? you've got to do yeah. all these things which yeah. that's good that's yeah. the direction no and i think i mean this paper is is um Pretty great. New evidence on the origin of carnivorous plants is a short paper, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. So it's in, you know, PNAS from, that's Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. That's always a strange little acronym to say out loud, isn't it? Yes. Um, and people who publish in lesser journals suffer from PNAS envy. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, they do. Okay. But um, that's just sort of a setup of carnivorous plants. Carnivores evolved lots and lots of times. The bar for whether or not you're considered carnivorous is, is high, as we've just talked about. Um, two stories, um, the first of which is what led me here, and then the second of which I've discovered while I was in this sort of rabbit hole of plant carnivory um, that I think may be actually even cooler. The first one, uh, research out, um, I guess it's actually in, in May of this year, facultative carnivory. Okay, facultative carnivory uh, here we have a picture of, and we'll just put this picture of this pretty, pretty little plant up for just a moment. Uh, and this is this is a science news piece, and it was about um, about a piece published in a different journal, um, which I'll go to in a moment. Um, inducible carnivory. Okay, so hand me my screen back if you would. Yeah. Um, th there's only one species of all, out of all of the hundreds of species of carnivorous plants known to be facultatively carnivorous, meaning mostly when you think of like a Venus flytrap or an Apenthes or something, it's obligate. Like you, you're, this is what you do for a living is you attract insects and you digest them and that's how you get your resources. But what about facultative carnivory where sometimes it pays to be carnivorous and sometimes it doesn't? Well, that's what this one plant is doing. Um, 
And so they live in West Africa. They've got this tropical monsoon climate, shallow, acidic, highly weathered soils with low nutrient levels. So a lot like a, they, they're wrestling in a landscape that's hard to pull nutrients from. And the tropical monsoon climate means that it's highly variable and somewhat stochastic throughout the year, okay, mm -hmm. with regard to what's available to them. And what this research finds is um, that when the growth medium is considered normal, like, you know, basically even um, uh, appropriate, and I don't remember exactly what the ratio, oh, you got a prediction? Well, uh, hold on a second. Ha I, if, I'm, if you said it, okay. Um, from the point of view of our listeners and viewers, yeah. these plants are getting nitrogen. That is the limiting thing that they are getting from their carnivory. They are uh -huh. not getting uh, carbon compounds. They're not getting energy. These are photosynthetic plants who are getting nitrogen in, no. No. Um, I mean, that's the, it, precisely this research was like, well, what is, you know, if they are in, if, if there's carnivory that is inducible by environmental circumstances, what is inducing the carnivory? What is it that makes them sometimes carnivorous and sometimes not? And, and in this case, it's like three different types of leaves. And one of the leaves is sticky and, and, and draws in insects and then they can digest them. So what are the conditions? Wait, wait, wait. You are, you are correct that they're not getting carbon compounds. But they're wait, 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 wait. Am I incorrect that a Venus flytrap or a Nepenthes pitcher plant um, are getting nitrogen and that this plant may be doing getting something else? Or am I wrong about the entire category of carnivorous plants? I think um, you are wrong only in that um, you're it's, you, it's too simple. And like if you think about gardening, if you think about... You know, we we don't buy fertilizers, but you know, it's 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 three elements that tend to be limiting, um, uh, or that tend to be out of out of the right ratio. It's okay. nitrogen, um, phosphorus, and um, potassium. Okay. Okay. Uh, and so, what this research does is looks at those three and says we're gonna we're gonna provide um, a relative a, a normal ratio. I don't remember what that is, and then we're gonna provide growth medium in which nitrogen levels are low and one in which the potassium limits are low, deficient in potassium, and one in which phosphate, the phosphorus levels are low. And only when the phosphorus levels were low did the carnivorous leaves develop. So in this particular case, it wasn't the nitrogen. It wasn't the potassium. It was the phosphorus. Now, well, they're in particularly different kinds of soils, right? These highly weathered tropical soils uh, with that are, you know, low nutrients in general with monsoons coming through um, that are presumably helping leach the soils further. Uh, so, you know, I don't, I don't know if more often it's nitrogen, but I wouldn't think that it was inherently nitrogen, even though even any more than I would think it was inherently phosphorus or inherently potassium. These are two, these are two separate questions that may be the same, right? there's a question about what triggers the morphology in which carnivory happens. And so from a trade-off perspective, the interesting thing here is the reason that we have carnivorous plants and other plants, mm -hmm. the reason that those are in general not, it's not a facultative question, is that a carnivorous plant is not able to compete with non-carnivorous plants where non-carnivorous plants have sufficient nutrients to do their thing. So I suspect... And, you know, neither of us are soil chemists, right? Um, but I suspect that 
you're thinking it's going to be nitrogen more often than it's phosphorus or potassium because we know that there are all of these tricks for nitrogen fixation in the soil that some plants do and then others can make use of their nitrogen and all of this. Uh, but I don't know that there aren't comparable tricks for phosphorus and potassium deficiencies as well. I mean, well, they're, I'm, they're I'm not... I wasn't actually even going to that level. The question is, the fact that you discover that low phosphorus triggers the production of carnivorous morphology doesn't necessarily say that what the plant needs is phosphorus or that it's getting phosphorus. It just mm -hmm. says that you've got a trigger, which could be that it needs phosphorus and this is a way to get it from insects. Mm -hmm. Or it could be that that's a good proxy that tells you when you're in a kind of soil in which nitrogen will be limiting and it is picking up nitrogen from the insects, but it's triggered by the low phosphorus, right? I could imagine that, like, for example. But why wouldn't, I mean, if, if it's a proxy for I need nitrogen, why wouldn't low nitrogen trigger it as well? Um, it might be, for example, that, so you're talking about a trigger, which is going to precede the production of leaves that are capable of remedying the deficit. And so there's a delay there, yep. right? So it could be that there's some sort of pattern, like if there's a leaching issue, that the soils are going to be depleted by the high flow through of water or something like this. I, I agree with all that, but this feels like epicycles to me. Why is it so strange that they might be limited in one of the things that we know plants in our agricultural systems oh, to be not, limited by? I, I, would, I won't be surprised by this. I won't be surprised by this at all. If So why are we working so hard to recover the, but maybe it's nitrogen after all, explanation? Well, I'm not trying to impose that on this plant that I've never heard of. Okay. 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 My question, you know, I'm perfectly ready to accept that I've misunderstood Venus flytraps on the basis that, you know, the textbooks have been wrong and it's not about nitrogen. That could be. So your question is, so again, at least nine different evolutions for carnivorous plants. Right. Um, your question is, you thought that in general, maybe across all or most of the evolutions of carnivorous plants, it was driven by a need to pull in nitrogen from nitrogen, uh, nitrogen deficient soils. I don't know. Well, I don't. I don't know the answer. Right, and you hinted at the reason that that would be such a common motivation for the evolution of this, which is that mm -hmm. nitrogen fixation is actually a tricky business that most plants right. can't do. Right, and so there are various, uh, you know, uh, mutualisms that bring in nitrogen. Uh, or you can eat bugs. Or you can eat bugs, right. So the point is there are lots mm -hmm. of ingenious solutions to this puzzle, and the one that right. is captivating to us is the consumption of animals by plants. That's <laughs> fascinating that plants do that. Yeah. Um, but in any case, the idea that nitrogen-poor soils happen all the time for various reasons, that lots of plants can't grow there. They are actually excluded mm -hmm. by the lack of nitrogen, which then creates yep. a niche for any plant, even an inferior plant, that can figure out how to beat that limit, which is why we get the evolution right. of carnivorous plants, is well, that and, the point is, you know, if I can grow there and nobody else can, then it, then, you know, the, the limit on everybody else's growth there saves me from all this competition. Right. But so this is why I find it analogous to the mangroves, right? Like lots of evolutions of yep. this habit that is marginal, where you're going to be at the edge of what most of your kin, and I'm talking about kin broadly, like most plants could possibly tolerate. But... Um, poor nitrogen is something that biologists think about a lot more than, mm -hmm. um, you know, farmers think about poor, you know, poor, poor uh, phosphorus and poor potassium soils as well. Sure. And, you know, in, in this particular case, it seems to be about uh, about the phosphorus. Yep. Well, 
again, I just, I'm not saying it isn't about the phosphorus. I'm just saying that it, to discover that the phosphorus deficit triggers the evolution of this morphology doesn't necessarily say that what the plant is then Develop. getting. Yeah. 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 I don't know about the evolution. Of uh, the, right. Triggers the deployment yeah. of this evolved adaptation, right? It could still be about nitrogen or not. I'm just agnostic about that until, yep. you know, until the, that research exists. Okay. Um, the other story I ran into about carnivorous plants, though, uh, some work published um, some number of years ago, 2009, I found uh, even more charming, uh, even though it involves poop. Really? Yeah. All right. So uh, here goes. It's a Nepenthes, uh, Nepenthes loei. Uh, we, we knew Nepenthes in uh, Madagascar. Mm -hmm. We saw pitcher plants. So uh, there are a couple of different origins, as I've talked about, uh, evolutions of pitcher plants, but Nepenthes is one of the giant clades that's kind of Nepenthes all over is... the... What is the dangling pitcher with the... Yeah, although in some species, including Nepenthes loei, they have both a terrestrial form and an aerial form, mm. um, and it's different by the age of the plant. So in this sky, Nepenthes loei, um, they live in Borneo. Uh, again, this is a, uh, carnivorous pitchers at ground level when the plants are young, and just standard, like, you know, they got these pitchers, and I, I think they, you know, close shut when they've got an insect in them. I don't, I, mm. Some of them do. I'm not sure these guys do. Whatever. It doesn't matter. Um, but once older, the pitchers change structure, and um, and they never they don't attract invertebrates at all. In fact, the slippery slopes of the terrestrial pitchers that um, help um, you know they attract the insects, and then once there, they can't get they can't get traction, and they slip in, and then they get digested. The um, these pitchers, once the plant gets older and they're now raised off the ground, they get more robust. They change the shape. They're not slippery at all. They actually have like footholds, and what they have in them is tree shrew poop. And the tree shrews, and I've got a picture here. The tree shrews, here you go. Um, the tree shrews are being offered some sweet nothings, some sweet stuff by these Nepenthes. And the Nepenthes, the adult Nepenthes that have these aerial pictures, have modified their structure sufficiently such that when, just like with pollinators, mm -hmm. right, when they're getting the sweet stuff from the plant, their anuses are positioned just so, so that they poop into the nepenthes and something over 50%, up to 100% of the nitrogen this time that these plants have in them is derived from tree shrew poop. Tree shrew poop. What was the percent? Over 50, up to 100%. That's incredible. Isn't that, that completely is incredible. So incredible? Let me this... get the actual number. Uh, 57 to 100% of the foliar nitrogen in mature Nepenthes loei are from tree shrew poop. So, okay. This, this, is, this is incredible because yeah. in some sense it is an additional... So we have flowers in which mm -hmm. typically a plant effectively hires an animal to transport pollen over a distance that the plant can't uh, traverse. Right. And, or another way to think of it is to radically reduce the amount of pollen necessary in order to reach a mate instead mm -hmm. of a wind-pollinated thing, which fills the air with pollen. And tiny pollen grains are transported on an insect or a bird or something like that. So that's one version of plants hiring animals. We've got frugivory in which plants... Uh, hire animals in a different way to transport a seed, to uh, transport the seed into a new habitat or to escape competition from the parent plant. Mm -hmm. 
right? These are very classic examples, familiar to everybody. But this is really similar. Yeah, it is. It's so similar. It's the hiring of an animal to collect, in this case, it's a shrew. It's probably eating the very same insects that the plant would be collecting. Mm -hmm. But it's hiring this animal to go out, intelligently find those insects, collect them, and then poop in the pitcher. And it's getting its nitrogen that way. So although this is not a, it's not a strategy that has taken over tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of plants the way fruit and and flowers have, but nonetheless, it's, you know, it's an equally uh, powerful demonstration of the idea of plants hiring animals to do things that you have to be mobile to do and plants aren't mobile. That's right. No, it's, it's utterly extraordinary. So this work was published in 2009 Clark et al. The title is Tree Shrew Laboratories, a novel nitrogen sequestration strategy in a tropical pitcher plant. And I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'm going based on just that one black and white picture, which I've seen for all of 45 seconds here. We can can put it back up. Looks like the reward is being offered on that cap structure. Yeah. Right? So imagine for a second that Again, I could be totally wrong about this, but that shrew is probably uh, an insectivore at the dietary level. It's a, it's an, a member of the insectivora. It's a true shrew. Right. It's That's a, a of... tree shrew, so I don't... Yeah. Oh, right, right. Yeah. Well, okay. So I don't know if it's an insectivore, but the chances are the way this evolved, if it is an insectivore, mm-hmm. is that insects were being... Um, attracted to Nepenthes because that's what Nepenthes does. Mm-hmm. The tree shrew was using the Nepenthes as an attractant. It was parasitizing the Nepenthes. Mm-hmm. It was eating insects. And the the uh, Nepenthes, the pitcher plants, that facilitated rather than thwarted this behavior came out ahead yep. because some fraction of the time the tree shrew would poop in the pitcher and it would get nitrogen more than it lost to the insects that were taken. Yeah, no, I mean, you could, I mean, we can do a whole... I'm not actually dismissing this at all, but a whole like arm waving story here where, okay, it was attracting the insects and uh, the tree shrew is like trying to grasp, but he's slipping because it's slippery because it needs to be slippery for the insects to go in. And the Nepenthes that gets a little bit stickier, um, maybe loses more insects, but gets more tree shrews and the tree shrews start um, to show up for the insects, but also maybe, oh, there's a little bit of a sweet reward. And so you get a little bit of positive feedback there. And then you get a modification of the size and shape of the pitcher such that when grasping in exactly this way, yeah, uh, the tree shrew poops exactly into the plant and the plant gets all of that nitrogen. Yeah, I don't think this is, uh, you know, hand wavy at all. The place it could falter is if uh, the tree shrew doesn't eat any of the things that the Nepenthes attracts. Was, in its, yes, um, or attracts in its, its younger form. Right. right. Yeah. Um, but the idea, and you can in your mind just see it happening, right? Mm-hmm. You've got this pitcher that is adapted to trap insects. It attracts a parasite, the tree shrew. And uh, that parasite behaves in a way that actually causes the pitcher to recover exactly the reward that it's built to recover, but in a way that is not anticipated. Mm -hmm. And then its structure modifies to orient the tree shrew so it more frequently poops in the pitcher. And by putting the reward in an increased level at a place that orients the shrew, it all works out. So basically it's it's a gentle slope on the adaptive landscape from a mod of it's it's a it's actually a beautiful demonstration of why the term 
exaptation is so useless. Good. Let's do it. Um, so exaptation <laughs> is, uh, I don't know if Stephen Jay Gould came up with it, but he used to tout so. this. Stephen Jay yeah. Gould uh, is um, highly regarded amongst people who are not evolutionary biologists. The evolutionary biologists by and large hate him because he uh, was uh, politically motivated to discount stories of adaptation. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, the the term is exaptation. Exaptation means that uh, instead of something being evolved for the job, it is borrowed for the job and it was evolved for something else. And the problem with it's this original, term- It's original use was it's adaptive use. But if the, it's the, if the organism is now using that structure that evolved for something else, for something new, that's not an adaptation, that's an exaptation. Exaptation. And the problem with it is that absolutely every adaptation is going to be you know, right. many exaptations because we're all so far from the origin of whatever we were that everything's been borrowed multiple times on the route to getting where we are. You know, it's a little bit, it's, it's this like time, it's like, it's it, ecology's mistake in general with evolution is the mistake of like, well, you know, the first peoples. Like, are you sure they were the first peoples? Because I feel like there were probably people here before them and uh, probably the people that we're talking about as the first peoples um, did some stuff to get rid of the people who came before them. And, you know, like start counting somewhere and decide that that's the beginning of history, but but be clear about that's what you're doing. So the same thing, same same problem. All adaptations yeah. are going to be exaptations. And in this case, you can see it, right? Because you can see the pitcher plant if the story that we are uh, intuiting must be uh, approximately right here. You've got a pitcher that is adapted to collect nitrogen from dead insects that it tricks into falling into a trap where they drown um, and is being modified to, instead of picking up insects, to uh, adjust the behavior of a would-be parasite who becomes a collaborator on the basis that it gets a reward and having collected insects itself and therefore having nitrogen that it's not using drops it into the picture. I mean, it's it's even possible, even possible. And again, you know, maybe you know, I don't I don't know, um, but that the tree shrew benefits also not just from the reward, but from having its poop harvested, so that it's not leaving a chemical trail out in the forest as to where it's been and where it might be findable by would be predators. Yep, that's going to be a tough one, but I absolutely agree. This is largely how mammals get hunted: is they leave unavoidable evidence that a predator with a good sense of smell can find, mm-hmm. um, which explains interesting behaviors like cats burying their poop and uh, one of the two um, sloths in Central and South America coming down the tree and actually burying its poop. Mm-hmm. I think it also accounts for the other one coming down the tree and pooping, but not burying it. Right. Yeah, I don't um, remember which is which, but yes. Yeah, I've yeah. forgotten which is which, actually. But um, but anyway, all of these things are about disguising where you are because something, if it figures it out, can uh, can yeah. predate you. Well, in the case of cats, probably it's more about so your prey don't know you're there. I don't think so. I think, it's you know, this is small cats and... Hmm. Uh, Big cats don't do this? Good question. I don't know. But um, in the small cats, I would say... Uh, Hiding from predators is more likely, um, but it'd be interesting if big, cat, big cats do it, then that uh, would suggest that it might also be be prey items. Yeah. All right. That's uh, that's carnivorous plants for today. That's carnivorous plants for today. <laughs> yes. Thank you for tuning in to carnivorous plants today. <laughs> we will have one and only one more episode of carnivorous plants today, and it will be a long time in the future. Right. <laughs> 
because I'm just I I think I think I now they're amazing. Like we've they we've run into carnivorous plants in the wild, and they are truly extraordinary. You really can't spend a long time watching them, but we're not going to spend time watching carnivorous plants while on air, are we? No, no, no they they're 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 some of them are fast for plants, but they're not fast enough that no. we want to become. We do not want spectators spectating our spectating of the. No, it's terrible being observed plants. while you're observing. Yes, it's, it's the worst. Who will observe? Really the not the worst. Yeah. All right. Uh, I think that brings us to the end of near the end. We're going to do some uh, some housekeeping at the end here of yet another episode of Dark Horse. Mm-hmm. Um, you have been hard at work recording a bunch of guest episodes. There was one that came out this week with Pierre Corey. Yep. And there'll be another. Well, we so we are going to come to you next Wednesday. So we'll be back uh, shortly, and then next Saturday uh, there will be another guest episode, and then another one on that following Wednesday. Uh, and then we'll be back the following Saturday. And then we are going to start um, mostly live streaming on Wednesdays, um, starting in July. On Wednesdays at 11.30 a.m. Pacific. Uh, but, of course, we will continue to have all of our shows available in all the normal ways. So if you can't tune in then, well, but you could tune in on Saturdays, apologies for that. Um, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to help us out some to, to change it up. Um, and soon we're going to have a website where all of those schedule changes will be posted. So that will be easier to track that way. So until, um, until we see you next time, if you want to, uh, find more of what we're doing, I write at Natural Selections, that piece that we were talking about in the first part of the couple hours today, um, what is on naturalselections.substack.com this week. Brett's got Twitter subscriptions going. Um, it's, it seems subtle on the Twitter site, but uh, it's... Uh, I don't, yeah, I, yeah. It's, it's, I don't know how subtle it is because I can't... When I look at my page, it doesn't uh, reveal itself. But anyway, um, yes, they are there. So uh, so consider joining. Consider, consider yeah. signing up. Um, we've got merchandise at Dark Store... No, darkhorsestore.org. Uh, great print shop, um, great couple who make all of our stuff. Uh, and uh, we're going to have some new, a little bit of new merchandise soon based on uh, something you said last week. We've got our amazing artist working on uh, working on art for that. Um, let's see, we've got uh, Hunter Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century. Signed copies available right here in the San Juans at Darvils, which you can, D-A-R-V-I-L-S, which you can uh, order online, or of course you can get the book anywhere. And tomorrow... On Sunday, July, no, June something, June 18th, uh, we have our private Q&A at 11 a.m. Pacific for two hours. Questions have already been asked, but it's it's nice and small, and we do actually watch the chat on that one and interact with people. It's a lot of fun, so if you want to join that. Um, it's fun, nice community of people. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Um, you can go over to my Patreon and sign up for that. Um, Brett's Patreon has a couple of conversations a month as well. And we are going to be moving stuff over to Locals. We've got um, people signing up at Locals. That's great. Um, keep doing that. And we will, we will be showing up there soon with plans. Yep. Um, and at both of our Patreons, and will be also through Locals, we have our Discord community, where you can engage in honest conversations about difficult topics. You can join a book club, sing karaoke, have virtual happy hours, maybe all at once. Absolutely. Probably not. Um, but uh, young or old... Uh, left or right, male or female, there's a spot for you around the Discord campfire. And they also send us a question each week, so we will start the Q&A, which will begin in about 15 minutes, uh, with a question from the Discord. 
And we invite you to check out our wonderful sponsors for this week. Once again, that was Uncruise, Soul, and Seed. All fabulous. I didn't say it this time, but we choose our sponsors very, very carefully. We don't accept any that uh, we don't actually and truly vouch for. So um, as always, those three this week are fantastic. And we're supported by you. So um, share, subscribe, like, um, talk about things you're learning here, like um, free shrew poop. Uh, with your friends maybe not over dinner but um, you know anytime else and if your friends can't handle it they're probably not worthy friends or just not biologists maybe yeah um, I don't know I, I would think I would think a crew friend could handle it even if it wasn't their uh, their cup of tea even at dinner uh, you might wait till uh, you know after dinner drinks okay. of course yeah, yeah. No, I think that's wise I think that's wise. Okay, until we see you next time, be good to the ones you love, eat good food, and get outside. Defend the Republic.